Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Uh, fellas, it's a brisk day here in Dallas uh, today. I hope everybody's got uh, uh, their their furnaces all checked up and ready to go when we had the big freeze that melts down everything next week. <laughs> Feels good right now. Get to get to break out the fleece. Good time. Sun's Good out. Time. A little windy. A little windy if you're outside, though. A little windy. A little windy. Evan, is everything okay there at uh, at your lovely abode? Uh, yeah, I did buy, you know, my office here on the bottom floor of the multi-level um, mansion gets a little bit chilly. And um, I did buy a big, big investment, big space heater purchase over the weekend. i um, hoping that comes in handy. Um yeah, I'm not looking forward to if Gina has to go back outside. You know, last year the uh, the tankless water heater kind of froze up, and my wife, who is the handyman in the family, uh, <laughs> figured a way to go outside with uh, with a hair dryer somehow. I don't, I still don't know how she got power to the hair dryer outside. Was it your hair dryer? Uh, d- definitely not my hair dryer. My hair dryer is 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 long gone, David. Long gone. <laughs> that was but a she, shot, boy. Uh, well, you don't want to hear the, from the only guy on the podcast with hair. You don't want to hear that. Those really, really just going for the lowest common denominator. But she <laughs> she did go outside with the hair dryer, defrost the pipe around the uh, the uh, tankless water heater, and everything was restored, which was the second consecutive year she performed like some miracle handyman work the previous year she like took apart the refrigerator with a youtube video and put it all back together to unplug uh to unclog some some blockage so we've got a good thing going here i do the what cooking were you doing, yeah, what were you doing while she was doing these chores well she was outside I, I think, in subterranean temperatures unfreezing a pipe what were you doing at that point podcasting i think i think i was wasting some time (laughs) podcasting evan was looking out the window that's what he was doing (laughs) yelling down honey you're doing great you're doing great you know i think jimmy buffett was listening to it beat up this is this is the uh the typical (laughs) when we were in new york in july or august uh, we're walking out of Central Park and happen to notice like a pigeon in a fountain. And then all of a sudden I noticed that the pigeon can't get out of the fountain. And Gina, the who has such a wonderful heart, goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she runs over to the fountain and starts to scoop up the bird. And I'm like, you're going to end up with bird flu. You're going to end up with bird flu. And she's rescuing this pigeon. And I'm like running in the other direction. So yes, I am a coward, and my wife is a hero, and I'm glad that I can at least get that on the air. Well, pigeons yeah. are carriers of disease. So yeah, I think we- that's true. Because there are no more carrier pigeons. They just they, do, <laughs> they just carry they, disease. Yeah, they just carry disease. That's correct. <laughs> but she has, whether whether or not that be the case, she never apparently got the bird flu. And as far as we're still in in touch with this pigeon, and he and his family appear to be okay. So dropping yeah. notes around the around key parts of the year. We use a carrier pigeon to get notes to the pigeon. Yeah, she didn't get the bird flu, but the bird flew, so that was good. Uh, all right. Uh, oh that's, my God! What a bad dad. Uh, that's yeah, that's, that's going to keep people listening on, for the rest uh, of the podcast. Sure. Wow. Absolutely. After that, I want to stay for the next hour oh, and forty-two yeah. minutes. 
it's not going to be that long. It's going to seem like 10. Uh, all right. So the Cowboys are in the playoffs. And, uh, and, and not only are they in the playoffs, they are the number two seed in the NFC, which three weeks ago, uh, or a month ago, I guess now, was unthinkable. Uh, that they were disappointed. As a matter of fact, I wrote that it was unthinkable at the time. I said there's no way they were going to win the, uh, the the NFC East, and because not only did they were they playing the toughest part of their schedule, the Eagles were playing the easiest part of their schedule. And I do think, that in some ways, the collapse of the Eagles has be- become, to me, the biggest story in the NFL. I, I just I don't understand it. I mean, I know that there have been. Other teams that have, have moved forward and, and, and the Packers, the Cowboys' first-round opponent the, uh, this week at Jerry World, uh, are a really good story. They finished really strong 7-3 in Jordan Love's first year as a starting quarterback. Who has, His story is just falls right in line with what the Packers do in their history from Brett Favre through Aaron Rodgers and now to Jordan Love. They just they just develop, find and develop quarterbacks better than anybody else in the game. But the Eagles, of course, uh, collapsing like they have, and now the story becoming that well, they were just—they're just waiting for the playoffs. So they waited; they've been waiting five weeks, I guess, for their playoffs or six weeks now. And they're one. No, this collapse is remarkable. It, yeah, it, it, it's it really remarkable. I—I I, I was the middle of the season. I would have told you that the Eagles and the and the Niners were clearly the class of the NFC. Um, yeah, I, I'm not buying that they were just waiting for the playoffs bit. Maybe they can turn it back around, but I, I that's going to be awfully hard to do on the road all three weeks. Look, they were well, ten they, and one. They were ten and one and finished eleven and and, and six. Yeah, uh, it's, they it's, lost it's five of their final six games. It's an unbelievable finish, and you know they they had things you could see that were a problem. You could we knew that their defense wouldn't be great, uh, but it just got worse as the season went along. And then the, you had a lot of people kind of questioning things. Fletcher Cox being quoted after the last game that uh, you know, this is some uh, scary stuff with the, with the team and uh, you know, those are not the kind of things you want to hear and read. And then there's of course questions now whether Jalen Hurts how hurt is Jalen Hurts? Did he have a um uh his one of his fingers on his throwing hand AJ Brown's role and his injury and his dissatisfaction and and again the whole identity of that team last year it was such a dominant run team and to basically abandon that this year and go to the air and the and the run game became secondary and then when that started to break down the run game wasn't there it's just a but remember what we were saying earlier I mean look up until this stretch and what makes it even more remarkable I think up until these final six games, Jalen Hurts had been, I think the Eagles were 26-2 and two with Jalen Hurts at quarterback and had won something like 13 straight games against teams with a winning record. And uh, But they were also winning those games close, and you kept going, well, that's, you know, that's a sign of a good team. But it clearly caught up with them, and their flaws were exposed, and it's, uh, boy, it's come crashing down. I Frankly... I don't – not that Tampa Bay is great. I am i don't see how they can win at Tampa Bay in their current state. I really don't. Well, it certainly would uh, – you would question that. I mean, you, you wouldn't have, like I said, a month ago, but you would now. I mean, they, they lost to the Giants. You know, they uh, I mean, just the Giants are a terrible team, and they got smoked by the Giants. I know that game – And they had stuff to play play. for the last two – they had stuff to play for the last two weeks. So let's not – I mean – 
they there was no reason for them to cruise. No, there was not. And not, I just think that there's – I think this is a product of what happens when you lose two coordinators uh, and, and you got a little bit arrogant about thinking that we can replace all these guys. And they try to replace certain people on defense. And they didn't and – they, and they did in some areas. Jalen Carter was a very good player for the Eagles this year. But um, they lost experience and they lost the coordinators, and uh, and so Nick Sirianni now, to me, is going to be on the hot seat. But let's let's uh, and, move over and on the Cowboys going into the playoffs. We now go to the Rangers. We yeah, that's right, exactly. Uh, it, it is uh, remarkable that the Cowboys now have positioned themselves to be the uh, yeah. the number two seed in the NFC. I, I just don't know that that any of us saw that. Halfway through the season, uh, the Cowboys were still struggling. When I still I, didn't when see I wrote, it two weeks ago. <laughs> well, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I just, but I just think that uh, you know, if you look at the ESPN's MVP vote, they have Dak Prescott third uh, in their MVP race uh, behind Brock Purdy and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember who they're. Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson's going to win. Jackson. That's right. Lamar yeah. Jackson is mean. their favorite. Which I think is probably about right. I, I do think that the you know I, I'm not really veering off of my feelings that the Cowboys are still going to really struggle to beat the 49ers should they get that far. But before we get that far, let's talk about this week in the Packers and what they have done. Uh, so David, you wrote today that uh, about uh, what about Dak's very first playoff loss was to Mike McCarthy and the Green Bay Packers and what they learned from that. So tell us about that. What did they learn about that loss? Well, I, what's interesting is Dak conceded how naive he was going into that game. You remember, took over for Tony Romo when no one expected him to, uh, not even necessarily in the preseason. Uh, uh, but then they just kept winning. We're 13-3, and three, the number one seed, and uh, host Green Bay in the first, you know, in their first playoff game. And He's thinking, in his own words, you know, I was thinking we were going to wipe Green Bay off the field. Then he looks up, and Dallas is down 21-3. Now, then he brings them back. They tie the game late uh, with a little more than 35 seconds left. And then Aaron Rodgers works his magic on a deep throw to Jared Cook on a a drag route to the sideline, sets up a field goal, and they lose uh, as time expires. So that that is Dak Prescott's first playoff experience. And he remembers thinking that, well, yeah, Aaron Rodgers is incredible, but that was that was just a lucky play. And he tried to console himself by saying, we just lost on a lucky play. Well, Mike McCarthy was on the sideline and the play caller for Green Bay that day. And now that he's worked with Mike McCarthy for a full season uh, as a play caller, it was interesting to hear Dak Prescott go, I know now that... There was nothing, luck had nothing to do with that play. Those are situations that Mike McCarthy goes over time and time again. It's not just the situation of here, here are some plays you can do on third and 20. It is where the receivers need to be. It's where the the offensive lineman needs to be. It's, it's where the, the tight end has to be. They're all tied in on what's going to happen. And, uh, that level to detail and commitment and that coordination that they drill and practice time and time again, uh, 
Prescott says now that, well, I, I can see that, you know, again, just how naive I was. There was a lot more at work uh, to, to making a, what looks like a lucky play really being not about luck at all. Well, let me ask you about that, because I was really intrigued by something that Dak said uh, <clears throat> after the, uh, the win uh, on Sunday. And that was talking about his relationship with his receivers and with Mike McCarthy as his uh, play caller. And he said they are the receivers are, are kind of on board now with what I'm thinking. You know, it made it seem like that a lot of and I'm not saying that that Dak was, you know, uh, passing the buck here or saying that, oh, the problem last year when I threw 15 interceptions wasn't me. It was my stupid receivers. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think it, it's interesting to me what the relationship is with, that he has with Mike McCarthy as a play caller, as opposed to what the one he had with Kellen uh, Moore. And I think that that uh, I'd, I'd like to see if you have an idea about exactly what it is that's different about that and why it is that it seems like Dak has come to enjoy this much more. Because, you know, as we went into when it happened, when Kellen Moore left, the, Dak was kind of dropping hints that, yeah, I'm, I'm not happy about this. And now it seems like he's- oh, he, oh, he wasn't. He was very close with Kellen. I mean, Kellen had been uh, his ally, and he had been Kellen's ally from the start. Uh, and Kellen is very creative- and, um, and, but he draws up created plays that are creative in and of itself and not necessarily tied to a, a through line, if that makes sense. And, and, and to give you an example, um, I, it's kind of difficult to distill all this quickly, at least it is for me. But, but to your point, I think it's Mike McCarthy's always talking about play caller's purpose. And, his belief is it's not just the quarterback who needs to understand the play caller's purpose. It is the receivers. It's the offensive line. It's the tight end. It's the back. Um, all skill, everyone on the offense needs to understand what the purpose of this particular call is and where it is likely to go and what the time frame on which, what is going to be delivered. And, uh, we were talking with Jake Ferguson yesterday a, a little bit about that. And he said that, you know, this staff with Brian Schottenheimer, the offensive coordinator, will actually draw up tape saying, okay, this on this play, this is what the purpose is. This is what Dak is trying to achieve. So this is where the tight end needs to be. This is where the receiver needs to be. This is where... And if, if Dak audibles and has to change to this at the line, this is how it changes, and these are your responsibilities. So it's it's everyone understanding, uh, and, and it's Dak being, you know, talking with the players more, saying, I think Dak has always held people accountable, um, but I think he held them accountable. It's like, well, he's a good guy. He know he made a mistake. You know, let me just pump him up. But now I think everyone's a little more receptive because all the other players have a better understanding of what they want to do on a play of actually having a discussion about why it didn't work. And okay, well, this didn't work because, you know, I took, I took a step out when I should have taken a step in right at this point. And this is why, and you know, Dak saying, well, yeah, this is why you needed to take a step in there because this was the look that was presented. So, uh, 
some of this is just the evolution of them being together longer. And and again, when you when you have a connection that's developed between like C.D. Lamb and Dak Prescott, uh, I think it just makes everyone it makes it easier for everyone to have a defined role and play off of that, even when things aren't working, because you can always know you can go to that well and get it to work. Uh, so yeah, they, How, it, it just seems to be much more decisive. The plays are getting in quicker, and everyone seems to have a better understanding of what a play call is supposed to achieve. Evan, how, how long has C, have CD and Dak played together? I mean, their their rapport should be as good as any quarterback receiver combination on the NFC side, should it not? Yeah, this is the fourth year. Uh, you know, it's it's the fourth year that uh, CD's numbers continue to go up, and even with the top receivers in the league, that's an unusual ascension where each and every year you continue to grow, go up. You know, the first year, uh, much different dynamic. Uh, Amari Cooper was the lead receiver that first year. And uh, C.D. Lamb was perfectly – and plus, that was – you know, Dak went out that year too, right? Uh, you know, he got hurt and wasn't there that full year. So, actually, the two of them together working has been three years – uh, that was also the COVID year as well. So that cut into off-season workout routines and and uh, altered the landscape a bit. But th- this is three full seasons, two full seasons with C.D. Lamb being the unquestioned uh, number one receiver of the team. And uh, you've just seen what they built. You know, I-, I will say this, though. You know, Des Bryant was the lead receiver when Dak, Prescott came into the league, and they never seemed to develop a rapport that's anywhere close to this. In fact, when Amari Cooper came in, he seemed to have an instant rapport with Amari Cooper in a way he didn't Des Bryant. So that there is something there to how the receiver responds and interacts and his understanding of the offense as well. For sure, but th- there's chemistry now after three consecutive oh, years yeah. of the starting quarterback and, and, and the number one receiver. I, my argument is that they should be. This should be an advantage for the Cowboys in the playoffs because I'm not sure there's a team in the NFC that's got better, that's got a better connection between its quarterback and its number one receiver at this point. No, and you hear other people talk about that, and and it's true. I mean, what I think he had 13 receptions in the Washington game. I think he looked his way 13 times, so he was 13 of 13. Their their percentage. When Dak goes to him, the percentage is remarkably high, higher than any other receiver. And and for people who say, yeah, but you know, teams in the playoffs are going to make that difficult and they're going to take him away, uh, Brian Schottenheimer and others in the Cowboys organization say, you think they haven't been trying to take him away over these last two months of the season? Uh, you know, a lot of it's the way Dallas moves him around, just the understanding he has. And, you know, t- to me... Dallas has had some very explosive and efficient offenses in the past, but what happened? What has happened is it was more democratic than what you're seeing now. And when it struggled, who did you go to to get it to get it righted to kind of rebuild it? You know, what was the one element you could always go to when things weren't working? And a lot of years, Dallas didn't necessarily have that in the offense in the passing game. You know, I, I think. Early Zeke Elliott, it was Elliott, just will run him and we'll, we'll, you know, recalibrate everything. Uh, you didn't really have that in the passing game, but you certainly have that now with, uh, with uh, Dak Prescott and C.D. Lamb. 
All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of the podcast. So we're going to move over now and talk about the Rangers. Evan, you have some news about, well, you have some, uh, you have a story you've written about what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, and which is, as we're taping this on Tuesday, on Wednesday, we'll have maybe a little more clarification about where they uh, stand in their television deal. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that what, what came out of the December hearing was that there was some some level of optimism that that Diamond Sports and MLB, um, the Rangers among the aggrieved teams uh, in that bankruptcy proceeding, uh, might be able to come to uh, some degree of, of a settlement that would allow these teams to at least recoup more than half, let's say, of their contracted rights for 2024. Um, now I've seen a wide range of numbers thrown out there. It could be anywhere from 75 to from 50 cents on the dollar to 90 cents on the dollar that the Rangers could potentially get for 2024. But I think if, if that happens, um, I don't know that it solves the viewership issue for those people who are streaming in 2024, but I do think it opens up the possibility that, the Rangers could once again get a little bit more active in, in in free agency, and I think the opportunity presents itself that the guy they'd like most and who would be the most realistic fit is still out there in Jordan Montgomery. Um, we can we can talk a little bit more about this and and whether or not Jordan Montgomery really prefers the Rangers over other teams. I, I would say that. All things being equal, sure, Jordan Montgomery would like to be back here with the Rangers. He won a World Series here. He had a great experience here, uh, worked well with Mike Maddox. But I also think that you got to get to a point where all things are being equal. And the Rangers have not been talking about realistic multi-year contracts with free agent pitchers to this point. You know, the thing I like about Jordan Montgomery uh, is just the uh, durability, you know, maybe more than anything. You know, he's... uh, he he really obviously showed a lot in the in that playoff uh push you know we we we've all talked about uh you know what that Cliff Lee was the you know the whole reason why they they got to the world series after they made that trade and and so this was another you know deadline deal in which uh, they got a pitcher and it was but there was certainly not anywhere near the buzz uh for the Jordan Montgomery edition as there had been for the Cliff Lee deal um and yet, when the the World Series came, uh, Cliff Lee kind of fell flat on his face, uh, and that that didn't really work out uh, so well. Whereas Jordan Montgomery continued to pitch well all throughout the playoffs, uh, and was a, a much more valuable addition. I don't know if they've ever made. I mean, I guess you could say they they've never made a, a better uh, deadline deal than Jordan Montgomery, simply because they won a World Series. Yeah, return on investment, right? Has there been yeah, a better return on investment? Yeah. They won a World Series with him playing a significant part. If if the Rangers had won in 2010 and Cliff Lee had won, you know, two games in the World Series, you would have said that was the most um, significant one. But yeah, I mean, I, I it's uh, I, I think the thing about Jordan Montgomery was even in this class of guys the Rangers traded for, he carried less buzz than the other guy. Um, and outpitched Max Scherzer, was healthier than Max Scherzer, um, and, and really seemed to take a, a, a big step forward all throughout this year. But but certainly, 
even more so with the Rangers. You know, the Yankees had him in 2022 and traded him at the deadline because they didn't think he'd be a part of their playoff rotation. Uh, and, and so if you're asking, you know, the Yankees have been a team that has been connected with Jordan Montgomery. And if you're Jordan Montgomery and you're, you're looking at that situation and you say, well, the Yankees didn't really believe in me two years ago and the Rangers rode me all the way through the World Series, if all things are equal, who would you rather be with? Yeah, well, absolutely. Why wouldn't you? And I don't know. He seems like it was hard to get a, a, a handle on who he was. Uh, didn't like talking to the media that much. Didn't have much to say. I don't really know who who he is or what he likes or what he wants. Uh, maybe all that plays w- well into it. You know, we, we certainly remember him coming off the mound and, and fielding that ball and, and diving. He's a big boy. And, and to make that kind of play showed his, his desire and his willingness to win and and what he was going to do, I'm, I'm looking at right now at his uh, innings per season. You know, uh, this last year, uh, 2023, through 188 innings. That's the most he's he's ever thrown. But he's he's been out there. Uh, you know, when you put him on the mound, he he, he pitches right. You know, he's not a guy that uh, has a lot of injury problems. And on a, in a rotation, and then of course, I'm I'm never ever going to promise the guy's going to be able to pitch because pitchers get hurt. That's just what they do. Uh, but when you have so many questions about the durability of certain guys, even when they come back, when when all of these guys are supposed to be coming back in the second half of, of the 2024 season, you know, you're still going to wonder about how long they'll last. You know, Jordan Montgomery looks like a guy, and he's certainly built like a guy who can give you a lot of innings. And the, the truth of the matter is Jordan Montgomery didn't pitch 188 innings this year. He pitched 219 innings. Yeah. Um, when you get when you when you factor in all the work that he did in the postseason. Now, listen, since 2021, he's he's gone 157, 178. And then when you factor in this year, it, it's gone to two, over 200. Um, and those are uh, realistic, manageable jumps uh, in, in in workload. But 219 innings. Um, that's a heavy, heavy workload for somebody. And so I do expect that there's going to be some degree of, of, uh, adjustment for Jordan Lyle going into Jordan Montgomery, into, uh, Jordan Montgomery. I'm sorry. Uh, that's the other South Carolina guy, the Rangers had, uh, <laughs> by the name of Jordan. Um, but I do think there's going to be some degree of an adjustment and, and some, some level of, of management that a team is going to have to do on him. And I do think that also, look, this is a guy who's 6'6", 228. That's what he's listed at. I think he was probably a little bit heavier than that, probably closer to 240. Um, and he's he's 31 years old. The question on, on a deal with him is, would a five-year contract be – be a bad contract, but it might be what you'd have to go to, um, to get him. I don't, I don't know that a four year deal for, for the guy who was the best pitcher in the postseason in, in the playoff run in the second half of the season is going to get it done. Evan, let's talk about what the Rangers have done so far, uh, this winter, you know, ESPN, David Schoenfeld, uh, ranked that gave them, I think a C minus, uh, which I think sounds about right over what they did. Uh, of course, we, we always have these discussions about who won the winter and, and really uh, how often does that translate to who won the summer? You know, I, I don't know that it's always, you know, an apples and oranges kind of comparison, especially when you take into consideration what the Rangers did the last two winters. 
and factor that in. And those were all still have obviously a large impact on what they do going forward. They didn't have a lot of uh, holes to fill. They did obviously in their rotation and their bullpen. And I would expect that one of the things they're, they're waiting on, or at least that Ray Davis is waiting on and maybe Chris Young too, is that well, let's see what we have to do at the trade deadline. Uh, and if, if there's something we have to do then, then we'll do it just like we did this year. So how do you uh, quantify uh, this winter and what the Raiders did? Well, I think this, I think this winter presents um, some interesting takes. First of all, I, I, it, there wasn't that much that the Rangers needed to do. Uh, they needed some starting rotation reinforcement, and they needed some bullpen arms. Their lineup, with Wyatt Langford likely stepping into the lineup and replacing Mitch Garber and then them moving the DH around, their lineup's as good as any in the American League. So they didn't need to do a single thing to their lineup. Um, on the rotation, they needed they, – on the rotation, especially with the, the signing of Tyler Malley, they have Scherzer, Malley, and DeGrom, three really good pitchers that they're expecting to get back for the second half of the season. So they may have what amounts to their trade deadline acquisitions right now. The interesting part for the Rangers is how do they navigate the first half of the season? How do they get through the first half when they don't have minor leaguers that they feel are ready to step in if they need them, and they're one injury away from really struggling in the rotation? And that's why I think that they they still need to address the starting rotation with some, some degree of innings uh, going forward. So I think that... There have been a lot of, and I don't even want to say a lot of things because I, there just wasn't that much to do, but I think they've addressed some of their their needs. I think there is still more to do, and I think there is an opportunity here for the Rangers. The way everything has shaken out this winter, the turnaround in the TV situation, the fact that the market has played out slow and that their most desired, most realistic target is still out there, that is... I don't think any team in the American League has made a real significant stride in um, separating themselves from the Rangers. Seattle's made a bunch of trades like they always do, and it's going to take a half a year for those guys to get to know one another, first of all. I think there's opportunity here for this team to really, um, I don't want to say repeat but certainly improve their chances to 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 go back to the world series and 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 to be the first team in in 25 years to to run it back aren't you a little surprised considering the fact that the rangers were kind of the role model of look you go out and spend a lot of money you can turn this thing around on a dime and you can go to the world series and win it and yet this this winter that's not what's happened the, the dodgers have spent a lot of money uh, as they always do, uh, and and I assume that the Yankees will spend some, the Mets will spend some, obviously, because they all have a lot of money. But, but I mean, the Royals have actually spent a little money uh, of, of all teams. But but why is it you think that that hasn't happened? Well, I, I think the Braves and the Phillies have also invested some money, and they've 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 made some some trade acquisitions as well. You know, Phillies re-signed Aaron Nola for. $170 million. So they, they, they spent some money. Um, I think you get into the, a little bit of that, the haves and the have-nots in baseball because of the lack of, a, of, of some degree of a salary floor. And I think that the other thing that has 
depress the market somewhat is, look, the Rangers are not the only team that's waiting for this regional sports network situation to be ironed out. And I think that in some regards, that has slowed down the market. Uh, The third factor is that with the exception of Shohei Otani, this was not a great free agent class. So I I, I think you you put all of those things together and you have gotten kind of a slower market. And and listen, if somebody had gone out there and, and really made a push for Jordan Montgomery, maybe he comes off the uh, off the market and maybe the Rangers are looking around even if they get out of this court hearing and there's not a lot of pitching out there to, to, to sign. Um, but I do think that, that they come away from this. If, if they come close to being made financially whole, there's a great opportunity for them to really uh, strengthen their pitching staff and, and improve their chances. Yeah. Uh, so if you had to, to give odds on this kind of stuff, do you, do you think that they're more likely to sign a starting pitcher? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't, well, let's put it this way, a guy, uh, uh, an upper tier starting pitcher or somebody for the back end of the bullpen. I, look, I think it's still going to be easy. Well, they're not going to sign a closer. I don't think that, that spending $20 million on Josh Hader or giving up what they need to give up for Bednar is is really going to be what they think is a, a, a wise expenditure. I do think that if they're going to spend $20 million on a, on a player f- over the for the year, that's still going to be a starting pitcher. It's not going to be a closer. So now if you're asking me if it's more likely, do they add bullpen help or do they add a starter? I think they could still add at least an, another bullpen piece, um, not an insignificant bullpen piece. I mean, whether it's a, a, um, a Jordan Hicks or a Robert Stevenson or a David Robertson, um, somebody along those lines, maybe they could be involved in something like that. And that certainly would be a shorter term deal in all likelihood than, than a starter contract. And it's going to be less total dollars. But I do think the opportunity presents itself for the Rangers to still address their most pressing remaining needs in significant fashion. Yeah. Now, to me, as we know, we can talk about the expenditures for this year. But, and I know that the luxury taxes, oh, oh my gosh, it's, it's just, on and on and on. I'm, I'm sick of hearing about the luxury tax and about, oh, they're going to, have to pay this. It's like you're making a lot more money this year than you're than uh, than you made last year. And you're going to because the season ticket sales are going to be up. Tennis is going to be up. Uh, and, and you and there is uh, and I hate to say that it sounds so old school. There is a responsibility after you win the World Series to kind of live up to that. You got to show that, look. We're yes, we're going to do what we need to do to defend this title. We don't want to be the Florida Marlins. We don't want to be a team that wins a title and then sinks back into obscurity for another three or four years and come back and try to make another run. And after that, this is not that kind of market. This is a big market. They 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 should have the money to do this. I'm not saying they, you know, I, I get the whole thing about what they spent on on the, those pitchers and what they spent on the middle infield. I get all that, but you still bear responsibility. And and listen, Kevin. The, to to that point, the column that I've that I've just written that that will be online by the time this is on on online. 
um, references the Marlins and the Royals and the Nationals and the Diamondbacks as all teams who won World Series over the last 25 years. In fact, they've combined for as many World Series wins as the Dodgers, Braves, Phillies, and Yankees over the last 25 years. The difference is those teams all faded back into obscurity. They didn't spend money. They didn't reinforce their championship clubs. They celebrated, and then they bowed out. The winning teams in the big markets just continued to pursue and pursue talent. The Rangers are in that position where they can move into that group. And here's, for me, the incentive for Ray Davis is, look, he bought this team for $593 million out of bankruptcy in 2010. The last valuation heading into 2023 of the Rangers was $2.25 billion. You do the math, and that's a 20% annual increase on your original investment. That's exponential growth. And here's the deal. In 2010, the Braves were worth, according to Forbes, $450 million. They are worth $2.6 billion, according to Forbes now, or were going into 2023. The Rangers, going into 2010, were worth $451 million, according to Forbes, worth $2.2 billion, according to Forbes, going into 2023. There's nearly a half billion dollars difference in the valuation of the Rangers and the, and the, and the Braves. The Rangers can continue to add exponential value to this club for the long-term profit by making by making a couple of signings this year, investing what still amounts to almost seed money and getting huge returns down the road. So I think it's a smart play on every level. I don't want to dismiss the idea that Ray Davis spent 800 or committed $850 million in contracts the last two years. I don't want to dismiss the idea that $100 million is a significant loss of revenue if that had been what had happened with the TV deal. But I think when you start to take everything into consideration, if you really want to be greedy here, there is the chance that winning begets more winning if spending begets more spending. All right. I like how that begetting. Yeah. I, feel like I, I, I always like to go biblical when I can. Yeah. No, get all the begats in. All right. That's going to do it for our, the Rangers segment of our podcast. You know, it's always interesting stuff. Uh, this uh, team building. I'm, I'm, it's always one of my favorite things is just uh, roster building in any sport. Uh, but I guess, especially in baseball, uh, it goes all the way back to my childhood. And watching Speck Richardson trade off all the, the Astros' best players uh, for you know uh, pot pea, pea pods. Uh, all right, now we're going to talk a little bit about our potpourri. We're going to going to run a lot of stuff through you here. We're going to have a little bit about the CFP. We're going to have a little bit about the Mavericks. Uh, uh, I, th- I think we had something else we were going to discuss in there, and someone's got to remind me about that. But uh, we're going to start with the college football playoff. And I'm sure everybody watched that last night uh, or Monday night as we're taping this now. Uh, and that was uh, the way Michigan just kind of manhandled Washington uh, and uh, ran the ball on them. I, I heard from a lot of Texas people saying, why didn't the Longhorns just do that? Why didn't they just run the ball? Because when they did run the ball, they ran it very effectively against Washington. The bigger issue in that game, of course, was that Michael Penix just pick them apart. I don't know that I've ever seen a college quarterback play a better game than he did against the Longhorns. Uh, and he didn't look nearly that uh, good 
against Michigan. And, and I think about ooh, Michigan my, has a lot better defense in Texas. Though, yeah, too. Michigan's got a better defense, got a much better pass rush. Well, that's what they, that's what Michigan did against Alabama too. Right. Uh, Michigan got a, a put, yeah. you know, Jalen Melrose nervous and, uh, yep. and he looked like he did when uh, he played against Texas in that loss mm-hmm. in Tuscaloosa. Uh, that's what happens. That's what separates quarterbacks, right? You give a quarterback enough time, and, and almost any of them will look good. Uh, and certainly in the NFL, almost any of them will look good. Uh, but if you get pressure on them, uh, and I know Steve Sarkeesian talked about in that game, oh, we got pressure on him. Well, no, you didn't get pressure on him. You, you made him move around a little bit, but there was always a, like a bubble around him. It seemed like no one got within about five feet of him that entire game in the semifinals. And, and then, you know, and I'll give him this. He he just threw some beautiful passes in that game. He didn't do that he at had, all. I mean, he, they he eventually did. got pressure to him, but it was after he was able to set his feet and throw the ball downfield. And there he did not have nearly – well, he had none of the type of completions against Michigan that he had against Texas. And he um, had some bad luck in that one too, a couple of you know they has got some big time receivers. They didn't make very good plays, but you know you, if you look back at certain plays in that game uh, between Michigan and Washington, uh, you know when Odunza gets the, open down the field on, on fourth down, he is wide open. That's going to be a touchdown. That's going to put you right back in the game early on. Uh, uh, then Penix, you know, just misses him. It doesn't come close to getting him, and and that's a fourth down play late in the game. They got a fourth down play when it's still just a seven point game and the back coming out of the backfield, you know, he has been used the entire game, takes his eyes off the ball, drops the ball. It's, you know, they give up the ball. That was a, that was a fourth down play that that drive would still have been alive. Maybe they go down and score there. So there were and those balls were all against. on the money against Texas. They were oh, all absolutely. on the money and he was not throwing off his back foot the way he was last night, wasn't throwing every pass sidearm the way he was last night, and I give credit to the Michigan defense. For me, that was the big takeaway um, in that game, was how does it pertain to, to what we saw from Texas, and I, I, I do feel like this is the area that Texas has got to get better if it intends to both compete in the SEC next year and play in the CFP, in, in well, the 12-team bracket makes things different, but uh, I, I, you get the point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, uh, and I think even Paul Feinbaum admitted that Michigan was better than Georgia. You know, he thinks that if Georgia had played in, in the CFP, they would have lost to Michigan, that Michigan played that well. Uh, they really were uh, tremendous. Uh, I thought going into the uh, tournament that they were the best all-around team. Uh, had a good quarterback, had a, had a good running game, had a good defense. Nobody else had all of those things going. I just thought that, you know, that J.J. McCarthy is a good quarterback, not a great quarterback. And uh, I thought that maybe Penix could outplay that. I even thought that Texas had the potential to do that because of its uh, outstanding skill position players. Uh, they were not able to, although they, did, they came back very Close, obviously. Uh, Texas was within inches of, of winning that game. But I got to tell you, if uh, if they had not played any better than they did against Washington, they would not have beaten Michigan. I, I do think that the best team in the country won. Now, I got, obviously, there's the question of whether uh, did they deserve to win. I know there was a lot of consternation about the fact of the, of the sign stealing that uh, Michigan was found guilty of and the fact that uh, – that Jim Harbaugh had to sit out three games because of that. 
that kind of put a little, uh, took a little of the luster off of all of that. Uh, I think, um, I don't know how much that played a factor early in the season. Uh, I do know that if you watch that game last night, they were the better team. They were clearly the better team against Alabama and they were uh, clearly the better team against Washington. I got no issues with Michigan being the national champions. Hey, they went 15 and 0 and they beat a 14 and 0 team in the national championship game. No, I mean they were the they were eligible to compete and they won it on the field. So I we can all have our opinions of Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan program, but I do think you have to give credit to those players on the field. Uh they earned it on the field. Is is Jim Harbaugh going to be an NFL coach next year? It was interesting, and uh, when asked about that after the game, he said, can't you give me the time to enjoy this? Can't I just live in the moment? Uh, Certainly not shooting it down, Uh, keeping his options. And and again, he scaled the mountain there. Um, He's at his alma mater. He's got them back. He's, He's now won a title at his alma mater. He has, they have surpassed Ohio State here in recent years. This is, this gets back to the, do you want to stay and sustain that? Or do you say, you know what? I've reached the pinnacle here. The only way to go is down. If I do, you know, now is the time to look to go somewhere else. Will, will my stock ever be higher than it is now? And I, I think the, the exit ramp is there for him to return to the NFL if he wants to. Well, for sure. So if you're if you're the NFL, if you're an NFL team, what's your hierarchy? Is your hierarchy in choosing Belichick, Harbaugh, um, Quinn, or Byron Leftwich, or does is Harbaugh your most attractive NFL candidate? Well, every team's at a little bit different spot, right? Uh, if if you need credibility and and a, I mean Belichick's at the top, right? Uh, but you also know that. I don't think he has any interest in going to Carolina. <laughs> you know, there, there, there are certain settings and it's like, you know, I equate this some when like when Pat Riley left the Lakers, there were only a certain number of franchises he was actually going to go to. Uh, Belichick's in that position. I believe Harbaugh's in that position as well. Remember when he left, it was San Francisco, which is one of the premier franchises in the NFL. So, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to go to one of those uh lesser franchises, if you will, either. So um, I think those are the two heavy hitters in that order. Um, And then after that, um, I I think Quinn's up there on on that list with with anyone right after that, as far as interest, you know, uh, garnered. Uh, Ben Johnson's a a hot young offensive coordinator in Detroit. Uh, He's getting interest. Uh, There are some others, but but, you know, also in, in this last cycle, you've had some defensive coaches who normally don't become head coaches who have become head coaches and have had success. And so everything's the, the trend and of the moment. And so I think that also aids Dan Quinn, too, as, as far as where he ranks. And, and I will say this, too. You could say, oh, well, Harbaugh, because he's coaching this league, he just won a title after Belichick. Uh, he's the guy everybody would want. I'm not so sure that it's not Quinn or Ben Johnson or somebody like that. I mean, it's uh, everybody's looking for different things, and 
And he's been away from the NFL for several years, and, and that should be factored in as well. The the game's different than it was when he left. I got to say that you know, and I, and I agree with all that. But you know, you, you look at what the situation is in each individual case, and in the Chargers, they took Brandon Staley. You know, who who knew who Brandon Staley was before he got that job, and and yep. and it didn't work out, right? So I, I got to think that at this point, uh, Chargers ownership is going to think, you know what. We need somebody with credentials here. We need somebody who's going to get this thing going in the right direction while we've got a franchise quarterback uh, who's approaching his prime. Uh, and so I, I do think they'll go with a veteran. Uh, you know, and, and certainly Dan Quinn would match that, right? I mean, he, he took a team to a Super Bowl. So uh, I, I think that he could certainly be Matt Ryan had guy. some good years when he was there. Matt Ryan had oh, his sure. best years when he was Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think that he would be a fine choice for the Chargers. I think that they've got their choice of whoever they want. Uh, they, they are to me, uh, far and away, the leader in the pack, uh, of, of the organizations that are presented at this moment uh, with vacancies. So I, I think they can get whoever they want. If I'm going to take one of those guys and mind the chargers, I, I'm, I think I'm leading toward Jim Harbaugh. I think he's, he's done it. He, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, and I think he, he, he does a great job. He's, you know, how many coaches do you know who've done a great job in the NFL and a great job in college football? Not very many. Jimmy Johnson comes to mind. Uh, certainly Nick Saban didn't do that. So if, if a guy can do it at both levels, uh, yep. that really tells me a lot about his ability as a coach. All right. Let's, so let's move over and talk a little bit about uh, the Mavericks uh, and what Mark Cuban's doing these days. Uh, he just, he, you know, I, I knew I probably should have taken that job when he offered it to me. Uh <laughs> You get get a little bit, of, a little taste of that thirty-five million he just doled out to everybody, and I and I heard that that people were complaining about it and said, "Oh, that's just a drop in the bucket to him." It's like, is that a question whether it's a drop in the bucket or not? It's still thirty-five million dollars he's given these people. I mean, it doesn't matter oh, if it's a drop in the bucket to you; it's what it means to everyone else who receives it. That's absolutely. how it should be viewed. Absolutely, I, I saw that too, and it, it's just the cesspool that is social media because. $35 million divided out, however you divide it out amongst that front office. It's not that large of a front office. We're not talking thousands of employees here either. Right. I exactly. Mean, even if it's 350 employees, what is that? $100,000 a person? It's, it's life-changing money, and it does not matter if it's a drop in the bucket to him. He is changing people's lives for the better in that regard, and that's what I want to get into about Mark Cuban. All right. Well, let's get into it then. Uh, what is it? Why, why is it that you think Mark Cuban? First of all, let's kind of go over some of the things that Mark has done. But he started his new pharmaceutical line, right? Which is something that'd be a benefit. You know, if it works out, it'd be a benefit for mankind. He's always he's long been associated with the Wounded Warriors Project. Uh, he he does. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, Mark does a lot of things behind the scenes and for a lot of people. And, and we know that he's done these things all along. It just seems like that they are accumulating a little faster now, and maybe they're just becoming more public uh, now as well. Do we think that that if Mark is – I don't think he needs to rehabilitate his image. I'm not saying that in any way. Uh, there was a time when, when Mark's uh, personality and his ego just – in my mind, overrode everything else. I mean, it, it was just, it was just too much, you know? Um, it was interesting in this town with owners like Jerry Jones and uh, Mark Cuban. I can't think of another town really that had two owners uh, that were so prominent 
and uh, and so egotistical. And yet they're two completely different kinds of personalities. You know, uh, Jerry, to me, was always much more likable than Mark, you know, because he took far more abuse than Mark did and yet kept coming back. I mean, it just it just never seemed to bother him that much. Uh, and it was just for all the goofiness, it's just likable. Mark seems to be a lot smarter guy, yet Mark has made a lot of mistakes uh, as well, uh, probably as many as as Jerry did, and and ran a more, much more haphazard front office than Jerry ever did, and yet uh, he he never got criticized. You know, some that did criticize him at times, but it 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 just didn't seem the same to criticize. Mark as it did Jerry. It was just easier. Jerry was just always seemed like an easier target than Mark did. Uh, so anyway, at any rate, to, to Evan's point about the things that he's doing now, uh, what is it that you think, how does this all add up to you? Well, I mean, I think that, listen, I, I think that Mark Cuban made his mark as an owner kind of as the poster guy for the internet bubble billionaire, right? I mean, he made all that money off of the off of the broadcast.com thing, bought the Mavericks, and then immediately was in every referee's face yelling and screaming and and self-promoting. And he in, in some ways had to do that because the club was so bad when he bought them. Um and, and I think that that for a long time was what was associated with Mark Cuban was the fines he racked up with the NBA. Um he was kind of the bro culture owner. And for a lot of people that was very appealing for a lot of people. It was very polarizing. David, you saw it more closely, I think than I did. And I don't know if that was your take on, on the early years of Mark Cuban or not, but for me, what I'm seeing right now is a guy who, who appears to be taking every effort to say, I am older, wiser. I want to make things better for people. Now that I have the ability to do that. And whether it's a drop in the bucket that it, it, to him or not, I think that's an admirable trait. Mark is a very complicated individual. Uh, wears that on his sleeve. I, I say this as someone who has gotten irate text messages from him at 2.30 and 3 in the morning, calling me on the carpet on stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, he is... I, I agree with you. I, I think there's there's a change here because he was, in my mind, early. A lot of Mark was he was a rebel without a cause. He was just a rebel to be a rebel. He was railing against the system. I'm doing it different. Uh, I'm smarter than you. I'm going to show you this is how you do it. I'll blaze a new path. And a lot of times he was smarter and he was blazing blazing the right path ahead of others. And but but he wasn't. He was doing so and never in a collaborative effort or never in a never in a way to bring others along or to be part of something. It was just, I see this. No one else does. Fine. I'll do it to heck with all of you. Um, and, and that's why he never gained a power base. Like you, you mentioned the difference in him and Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones was a lot like that early, too. Right. But what did he do? He used that as leverage and a wedge to kind of break things apart, but then build consensus going forward. In my mind, Mark has never been interested in building consensus going forward. It is, here's an idea. This is the strength of my idea. If you agree with it, great, you're with me. If not, so what? I'll keep going. But I, I do think over time, he's modified that a bit, and it's not that harsh of an edge. And I think you see him 
being more inclusive and more collaborative uh, in ways that you didn't see earlier in his career with some of his ventures. And I also agree with you. And I've had people tell me this, and you know, I try to do stories early on Mark about what he was doing quietly for people. Uh, and people were scared to death. They said, Cuban doesn't mind doing this, but if it ever gets out, it's going to be my head on a swivel. He doesn't want people to know about this. So uh, a very complex individual who who has done a lot of good behind the scenes and and hasn't, as much as he seeks attention in other areas, he hasn't sought attention for himself in that in that way, which I think says it says a lot about him and, and speaks to his uh, complex nature. Yeah, I did a story about him. Uh, oh, what was that last year, year before last, uh, and what he'd done for a former player who had drug issues and and uh, uh, had actually not just a question of him giving him money or doing something. He he went to a place. Uh, someone called Mark and told him that this you know, this guy's here. He's struggling, and uh, and Mark went there. But physically went there and picked him up. Uh, and, and I've had I, people who don't like Mark tell me there are more of these stories than we will ever know. Yeah, you know? and and when I when I wrote the story and I contacted Mark about it, he kind of was hesitant and everything. And I finally just told him, Mark, I'm just saying this was a really nice thing that you did, you know. And he and he, and he said, Well, thank you. But it was it was it was hard for him to take the compliment. So yeah. I give him lots of credit for that. Now let's let's uh, turn on on a dime here and talk about. So going forward, now that he is no longer the majority owner of the Mavericks uh, and uh, what that means going forward, you know, the initial reports were that he would continue as the governor of the team. Uh, that clearly was not the case. You, you don't spend the kind of money that the Adelson family did and not be running the team. You know, that just doesn't work that way. These people make, have made a lot of money. They have not made a lot of money by just handing it over to somebody else and saying, here, Take all this and do whatever you want with it. Uh, that's not the way it works. Uh, and so uh, Patrick Dumont, who is uh, the uh, son-in-law of Miriam Adelson, who is the uh, widow of Sheldon Adelson, uh, who made their billions in, in casinos uh, in Las Vegas, uh, he will be the governor of the team uh, going forward. I have to think that at some point, you know, uh, they can say all they want to that, well, Mark's going to run the basketball end of it. Uh, that might be the case for a while while they get their feet wet in this whole uh, situation. But eventually, uh, it's going to come down to the situation where Patrick Dumont's going to want to do what he wants to do. Uh, and, and I think that that's, uh, that may come to fruition sooner than Mark would like. I'm, I'm not really sure where, where Mark stands on all of this, you know, as far as the, the basketball going forward. I, I have to feel a little bit like, because of what we've seen over the last few years, uh, he has retreated a little bit. He still sits down there, you know, a couple of rows off the floor. He still yells at the refs. He, he still is kind of more or less the face of the franchise. Um, but he he's not as prominent as he once was. And he does have more interest in other things. And I think, you know, when he tried to buy the Rangers, and that's been what, Evan, 10 years ago now? 13 uh, years. 13 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That was 13. Wow. It's hard to believe. But that even that to me showed that, you know, he was thinking about something else. You know, uh, I, I think he would have rather have been 
a baseball owner than a basketball owner, you know? So I, 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 don't I, know. Yeah. I, I think basketball is his first love. Well, I think it's his first love, but what he said at the time was that, that, the baseball, I don't know. I don't know that I can't say that. I mean, he was a huge Cubs fan, and I, and I think that that Mark really uh, had some interest in doing. It. I, I think he thought that baseball was something that was that you can build with that, and you can and you can work with it. And of, of course, you didn't have a salary cap, and Mark was always about you know spending money, and so that was a cool thing with him. I don't know. I just had the feeling that I, well, my my take on that was that he he saw an opportunity since they were a devalued franchise supposedly going through bankruptcy. Um, he uh, he also that was an era when there was owners owning multiple franchises, and there was some thought that that was the way to really build your empire. And so I think he saw some of that empire building, but I never. I never got the sense from him. And, and I think on some vanity level, as a Pittsburgh guy who grew up alongside and knew Chuck Greenberg, there was some vanity competition that I'm going to beat you out on this too. Um, but I, I, I don't never, I don't, I didn't ever get the sense that there was a real passion from Mark to own the Rangers. I never felt the passion that he certainly exhibited for the Mavericks. Um, Yeah, I that 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 that's the only way I can sum that one up. Well, I I think he I think it was more than what you thought. My 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 biggest takeaway from that was was I remember sitting down and we had dinner with Nolan Ryan at the ballpark, and and him asking me about Mark Cuban, and I'm trying to explain to him what Mark is like and what he's about, and the look on Nolan's face the whole time I was explaining that. Uh, I could tell this was not going to be something that he appreciated. He was not a Mark Cuban kind of guy. Uh, and, and Mark Cuban was teamed up with Jim Crane at that point in time too, and and yes, I don't know was. that marriage would have would have ever worked out really well. So, um, yeah, it, it wouldn't. Have, but that it also kind of is as smart as Mark is, and and I give him all the credit in the world. And I've written this a, a dozen times. I'm always loath to get in arguments with someone who's a lot smarter than me and who doesn't sleep. You know, uh, those those two things really bother me. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I do think that Mark has has made mistakes, and he has, uh, and maybe he's he's he, he was the thing about Mark was he always hated it when you pointed out the mistakes. You know, every no one likes that, but but Mark particularly hated. It. He would never admit if you told him that this was wrong, and you have to admit that you're wrong. He would not do that. Now later, he was on, more he combative. He was very combative. Yeah. Yes, he, he would he would admit a mistake on his own, but he would not admit a mistake if he if you pointed it out to him. I think that Mark, as Evan said earlier, I think he has grown up a lot, and I think that these are these are interesting things to see where he's going and what he's going to make of this going forward, and 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 uh, what happens to the Mavericks because this introduces a whole new line of questions of, of what will happen. You would think that the new owners would obviously love having. Uh, uh, Luka Doncic as their centerpiece. I mean, who wouldn't love that? Um, but we just don't know. We don't know anything about them. We don't know how they're going to uh, run this franchise. And these are, are real questions to ask because uh, Mark can say all he wants to, the fact that he's going to run the basketball side of it. Uh, he's no longer the majority owner. He doesn't get the final say anymore. Uh, and, yeah, the, the, end, the end game on this is, look, his position is – 
it's going to continue to recede. There's only one direction in which his his profile can go with the Mavericks at this point, now that he's relinquished control, and that is for it to continue to recede. Now, how fast that goes, that's a matter of, of discussion, but there's only one direction in which it goes from here. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for uh, checking in with us. We'll be back next week to talk about where the Cowboys are and that they've continued up down the playoff road. We'll see if the Rangers are doing anything. And, uh, and from there, we'll just try to guess what happens. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks. And we'll see you next time.